We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Well, good morning. Please open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3 this morning. Ruth chapter 3. I've enjoyed our walk through Ruth so far. Short book as it is. We'll get to the end very quickly, but what a wonderful story of God's grace and work in the life of an individual, many individuals, that is. But the particular focus being Ruth. Chapter 3, remember last time, so happened that Ruth wandered into the field of Boaz. Providence, that may be what we say. God working so that those things unfolded. And you might remember then, Boaz prayed this prayer. I just want to go back to chapter 2 for a moment. Boaz showed unmerited favor toward Ruth. And he says in verse 12 of chapter 2, The Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. And I'll just put this out. You never know how God may answer your prayers. It may be that he answers them by using you to do something. And that is certainly the case here. God answers his Boaz's prayer by using Boaz to to uh, be kind to Ruth and to take her under his wings and ultimately then under God's wings. Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. And you shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do. When I taught through this book, I wanted to point out Importantly, that there's nothing immoral about what she was doing here. Uh, It was all above reproach in her actions. Verse 5, and she said to her, All that you say to me I will do. So when she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was cheerful. And he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain And she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. 
Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, and that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, Do not let it be known that the woman, that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also he said, Bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she had held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me, for he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. The Lord bless the reading of his word. I too never get tired of reading and hearing that account. What a blessing that that is. God worked in the kindness of that man Boaz. If you turn your Bibles as we turn our attention to God's word to Luke's gospel, please. Luke chapter number 1, we're working through this chapter, long chapter, and we're in the final segment of it here with Zacharias's word from the Lord, the title of the message, John's Birth and the Benedictus today. Uh, often, as I was speaking to somebody earlier, we speak on these portions of God's word at Christmas time, so we'll just make this Christmas in August and uh, enjoy uh, Luke chapter 1 and um, the account of John's birth. John's birth foretold that God was keeping his promises to the nation of Israel and to his people and reminds us that God delivers us to serve him. Let's read the text, chapter 1 of Luke, starting in 57. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth the son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. 
Then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed, that is Benedictus, blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God. May I pause, thank God for that mercy. What a tender mercy, that mercy with which, the text continues, the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Well, we've seen the angelic announcement of the birth of John. We've seen the angelic announcement of the birth of Jesus. And we now arrive at the fulfillment of the first of those annunciations, the birth of John, who was later called the baptizer, or as we know him, John the Baptist. Just imagine, if you would, with me in the text when it says that she brought forth a son, Elizabeth did, and her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Would you just put yourself in that place of an elderly woman, Elizabeth, who has never been able to have children and has not only now become pregnant, but also brought a child to full term and delivery. Think of the labor, the delivery, the first cry that she heard, the first feeding. What a marvelous blessing. All of that was. And then I imagine how tired would poor Elizabeth be after all of that. And she's not, you know, 19 or 23 or something like that, which is tough enough. And how much help would she need in uh, raising up this child in the first weeks and months of, its, of this little boy's life? I uh, paused to think, uh, and I've put in the notes there a little, uh, my, my musings, if you will, on the age of Elizabeth. The text of Scripture just says she was well advanced in years. And I tend to think that of that as like, you know, she's probably 80 years old or something. But I had this kind of horrifying realization. Um, you know how, how old Zacharias was? How old could he be to serve in the temple? In the Old Testament, it tells us they served up to the age of 50. At least the priesthood operated as instructed in Numbers chapter 4. In many places in Numbers 4, starting in verse 3 and all the way down through the 40 or 50 verses in the chapter, it reiterates this, this age of 50. So 
if Zacharias married close to his age, perhaps Elizabeth was maybe that age herself. And I see some of you starting to look at me with a scowl on your face because you know what I'm going to say next. I'm sorry to have to say that at that time, it may have been considered near 50 was well advanced in years. Yeah, right? Some of us that are near that or past it are like, oh my, this is not good. Um, Even today, of course, having a baby in your late 40s is pretty tough. Raising a child to adulthood then in the 50s and 60s, that's also difficult. Now, the good news is, I suppose, I I had to put this in, is that we can stretch the well-advanced-in-years or advanced-in-age idea a bit because the life expectancy of women at that time may have been around 35 years, 45 for men. Infant mortality was extremely high. Other sources put the expectancy at just over 30 years, and some I saw at 25 years of age. Now, the number depends greatly on whether you factor in infant mortality or not. Obviously, if a bunch of children die under one year old, that drags the average way down, right, mathematically. But even without it, the life expectancy was somewhere between 35 and 40, more or less, which makes it even more remarkable when we come later on in Luke 2 to Anna, who was at least 84 years old. I mean, that would be ancient in this time period. But can you imagine only living till you're 30 or 25 even? Expecting, you know, the, the, because the elders in your community are in their 40s, and you're like, man, that is old. <laughs> I'm not gonna, I might not even make it. I, I, I would only hope to make it to 40. 50 would be out of sight. We might chuckle at this a little bit. Oh, by the way, you know, how, 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 would, you, how would you live a longer time in that era? Read more uh, self-help health books? <laughs> they didn't exist. Uh, watch your diet? No, you probably ate what you could get your hands on in some cases, a subsistence or an agriculture. Uh, you know, it was more advanced than we might think, you know, wasn't caveman existence or anything like that, but uh, the Bible says if you uh, obey your parents and honor father and mother, there's a promise associated with that, isn't there? That you would live long on the earth. So if you wanted to live long, you attended first of all to spiritual matters. You know, not worrying about how much you know chocolate cake you ate or whatever. Um, attend to spiritual matters. Deuteronomy five has that command, the, uh, the, the original giving of the Ten Commandments, and also reiterated as we read earlier in Ephesians chapter 6. Because of God's blessing, when someone obeys him, they receive the general blessing of God and the natural health that comes with being a good steward as a follower of God. Let me say that again. As a follower of God, one who fears God, you are naturally going to want to and attempt to and try to... Uh, Enjoy the natural health that comes with being a good steward of your body. You don't put things in that are bad, and you don't do things that are bad uh, for your body. But today, we're filled up with this kind of stuff. I mean, people now, you you smell the marijuana all over the place. It's more and more, it's just really sad, especially around these parts. Down in, in Ypsilanti and Ann Arbor and different places, everywhere in the state putting bad things into our bodies. That's not being a good steward. So if you want to live long on the earth, uh, attend to the spiritual matters of life. 
Now, we might chuckle a little bit about the old age thing and, you know, say, oh boy, I'm, I'm in my late 40s or I'm in my 50s. I'm over the hill. You know, I'm, I'm well advanced in years. But on a more serious note, this does point out that our young people seriously need to think about growing up before they're 25. Now, I understand brain science and all that they say today, but let's get real. If somebody only expects to live to 30, you can't, like, not grow up until you're 29. You know what I'm saying? It's high time that we as Christians realize we need to uh, be mature and not children into our 20s. Longer life does allow for a more relaxed timeline. You know, when you're looking at life and saying, oh, I might make it to 74 or, you know, 80 or 85 or something. You know, if you're an enthusiastic, I'm going to make it till I'm 90 or 95 if my parents made that, that great age. Uh, great, but, you know, don't let that relaxed timeline uh, drive you into just kind of, well, whatever. <laughs> I don't have to get with it until I'm 30 and that sort of thing. No, not so. Don't relax the timeline too much. It's time for us to grow up. Uh, of all people, Christians should be uh, the most mature. Um, now, it tells us about the circumcision here, and God's law given to Moses specified that a male child was to be brought on the eighth day of his life to be circumcised, and this is evidently the day in which they officially uh, gave the name to the child. And I wondered, I wondered, I don't know this for sure, but I wondered how many children ever died before the eighth day, how many boys, and never received a name. Baby so-and-so buried under this tombstone. As sad as that is, that just, that just bothers my heart. Think of the young ones not making it past a week in age. But Zacharias and Elizabeth both were primed by the angel to name their baby John. And John was well protected by God because he was going to be in 30 years the forerunner of the Messiah. And the, the neighbors and friends, the relatives wondered, why is his name going to be John? I mean, he ought to be called Zacharias. It's a boy, and it's, you know, the father's name is Zacharias, so it should be Zacharias ben Zacharias, you know, ben meaning son, Zacharias, the son of Zacharias. Well, first of all, because God said his name was going to be John, that's what his name is going to be. But why did God instruct to name the boy? Why not let the parents do so? I mean, did it, did it matter? Well, yeah, I mean... That sounds strange saying, you know, Luke the Baptist or uh, Matt the Baptist or something like that. No, it's got to be John. No, putting silliness aside, this child belonged to the Lord. Actually, every child belongs to the Lord, don't they? Every child is, is God's special creation. We name our children, though, because they're under our parental authority. We, we like to think of them as our children. Our children. And after manner speaking, that is true. But as I said, all children belong to God. And in this case, God stepped in as the direct authority over John and said, I want his name to be John. That's what I wish, and that's what comes to pass, according to the message of Gabriel. Additionally, the, the, the etymology of the name is significant. 
And uh, I hope this will be an encouragement to you, a blessing as it was to me. The, Lord, the, the name of John means God is gracious or God has shown grace. This corresponds to the Hebrew Old Testament name Yohanan, the Yah part coming from Yahweh or God, and the Hanan is the verb to give or show grace. And so with variations of spelling, Yohanan, John, Ioannes in Greek, you have the grace of God displayed. And what a perfect word picture that is. If you think about what John was doing as a minister of God's grace, he was calling people to turn from their sins, which is, which is good for them to do, and it's gracious of God to call them to do so. Those there didn't believe Elizabeth, so they wanted to confirm with the father, Zacharias, what the boy's name would be, and so he wrote John on his writing tablet. I suppose that he kept one around handy over the last nine months because whatever he wanted to say, he either had to sign it or he had to write something out. Very unique situation for him. And so at the moment that he wrote the name of the boy as John, Gabriel's curse, as I called it, was lifted. And Zacharias once again was able to speak. And in the ensuing moments, he praised God with his voice. Oh, that the first words out of our mouths would be praise for God. Now, the term uh, Benedictus is used for this text, starting in verse number 68. Um, after Zacharias regained his ability to speak when he, John was eight days old, and like the Magnificat, as I pronounce it, the title comes from the Latin of the first word of his proclamation. So Mary's first word, my soul magnifies the Lord, the verb fronted in the sentence in Latin. And here, Benedictus, blessed is the Lord God of Israel. Now, it had been three months since Mary pronounced her magnificat. Remember, she went there, uh, the baby leapt in uh, Elizabeth's womb. She stayed, Mary stayed three months, then she left. Now the baby's born, and so three months And it was still another six before Jesus was to be born himself. But Zacharias picked up seemingly right where Mary left off in her praise of God. She spoke about Israel and the promises to Abraham, which God did not forget. Those promises that he made from ancient times, I'll review those in a moment. Zacharias mentions the same promises himself and shows that the events that he was witnessing were the fulfillment or the initial fulfillment of those promises made to Abraham and to King David. Mary called God her Savior. You remember that in verse 47, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. But Zacharias focused on God's provision of the Messiah in fulfillment of his promises. Messiah was to be the horn of salvation, the horn of salvation. In verse 69, he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. A horn is a symbol of strength and power, a symbol of certainty, the horn of salvation. And that was to fulfill God's promised mercies. Mary gave attention to her own situation and how God helped her as as well as how God helped those who fear him. Zacharias gives attention to John the Baptist and to the entire nation of Israel. 
Now, in the uh, notes, somewhere down there, you'll see I've uh, reproduced the text. Um, I'm not sure what page number that is for you, but it's in there. The text is reproduced from from the Benedictus, and I've underlined a number of key words, and I've also highlighted, although it didn't come out too well, it's kind of gray highlighting here, uh, I've highlighted all the times the word redeemed or salvation uh, comes up in the text. And so you see uh, the Lord God of Israel is mentioned. I've underlined some of the pronouns that re- refer to him as well. And then you have redeemed and you have salvation. Uh, you have uh, the day spring from on high, another identifier. You have the word saved uh, throughout the text. About six of these words that speak of redemption and salvation and rescue of of God's people. To an Israelite, these phrases would be uh, referenced to something that is a multidimensional concept. So what I mean by that is salvation, when you talk about it in the Old Testament, could refer to physical deliverance or it could refer to spiritual deliverance. It could refer to individual, physical, or spiritual deliverance, and it could refer to national, spiritual, or uh, physical deliverance. Are you with me? So spiritual and uh, physical, individual and national, and all the combinations of those. And so salvation was not just, you know, don't read it like just, oh, he's talking about getting saved and being a a Christian person. Uh, That's not, we're not to limit the text to that. It's a broader idea. Salvation would be thought of in this multidimensional sense with physical and spiritual, individual and national aspects. And we can see all those in Zacharias' prophecy. A faithful Jewish person, for example, would realize that the deliverance from Egypt was a physical deliverance from bondage. It also drew them away from idolatry and paganism, but it did not save them in the spiritual sense that we use saved in Christian circles today. The Bible, in fact, says with many of them, God was not well pleased. And they died in the wilderness because of what? Unbelief. They died because of unbelief. So the most important kind of salvation, indeed, is spiritual, whether on an individual or national level. But when the physical aspect of it over, is overemphasized or overshadows the spiritual notion of salvation, that, that spiritual notion often recedes into the background and, and sometimes, often, becomes completely forgotten. And I don't want us to do that. I want us to hold this idea of salvation together in its physical and spiritual aspects, but not let one of them overrun the other one. This is the problem with modern political movements. People begin to think that salvation comes from policies or politicians or laws or courts, you know, better living conditions, health care, economy, jobs, peace, in the world, and so on and so forth, but those physical aspects do nothing to provide for the deep need of the human soul, which is sin and salvation from sin into a reconciled relationship with the Lord. So you see the uh, layout of the text there on those uh, next page. 
and I drop down to letter F in, uh, under Roman numeral 2, and just give a quick outline of the text. You'll notice that in verses 68 to 73, Zacharias focuses on God's promises and corresponding actions uh, related to those promises, and then he turns his attention to speak about how God's people would respond, and that's where I wanted to focus a little word of application for you today, but I may not have the time to get there. Let's see, just for a few more minutes, hang in there with me. And then in the last few verses, 76 to 79, you, uh, it says, it speaks of the child uh, and his role to be a prophet to prepare the people and to give saving knowledge to them. So we start out with verses 68 to 73, which I put under the heading, The Promise-Keeping God. Zacharias introduces his speech by speaking of, of it in general terms in 68 and 69. Blessed is the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation from us, for us rather. Do you notice what he uh, says there is in the past tense? He has visited he has redeemed, he has raised up a horn of salvation. What is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that John is now born, present with them, out of his own loins, as it were, and his wife. That God has blessed and visited and redeemed and raised up a horn of salvation. And he knows something of the, by connecting what Mary has told Elizabeth and putting this together, he knows that this is going to be the forerunner and that there's Messiah coming within the lifetime of John the Baptist. And so he can say in the past tense, God has visited. He has raised up a horn of salvation. He has redeemed his people. It's as good as accomplished. It is a past tense, which is kind of a prophetic past, if you will. It's referring to something that is done, that is accomplished. He says that God has visited and redeemed his people. When God visits you, he doesn't just come to see you. He comes and does something for you. And he did so for the nation of Israel. Chapter uh, 1 and 68 has this phrase, visited. It's an often used phrase or word in the Old Testament. Uh, God visited uh, Sarah. God uh, visited the people of Israel. And what happened? He heard their cry in Exodus chapter 3, and he delivered them. So it's to actually do something for his people. He's also redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation. Now, Jesus wouldn't be born for another six months, but Zacharias knew by the Spirit that these things prophesied so long ago were now happening and that the house of David would once again rise to prominence out of its current obscurity. The future was as certain as the past or the present. God was fixing to rescue his people from sin and oppression, and that was just that. That's how it's going to be. Now, notice uh, also in verses 69 and 70 and then 72 and 73, I just wanted to point out that Zacharias is a master of the Old Testament revelation. Again, like many of the people of God, even Mary, we mentioned last time, in her knowledge, extensive knowledge of God's Word, 
It says in verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. And then if you look in verse 73, it says, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. God, by two immutable things in which it is impossible for him to lie, gave us assurance of these things. He made the promise and then he made an oath that matched the promise and double guaranteed it. Of course, he didn't need to do that because whatever God says and promises will come to pass. But Zacharias mixes, or not mixes really, but one after the other talks about the prophecy uh, about the house of David and the prophecy from the time of Abraham. So he goes back 1,000 years before his life, before Zacharias lived, when God promised David a dynasty, a people, and an an everlasting peace, a a descendant to sit upon his throne forever, and, and and a kingdom. That's 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant. So he integrates that into this blessing and praise of God. And then he also integrates something from 2,000 years before him where God promised to Abraham a nation and blessing and uh, through him the families of the earth would be blessed. Remember um, that promise in Genesis uh, 12, 1 to 3? And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, what does that mean? Well, we might find it a little obscure, uh, apart from Galatians chapter 3, which says in, in that phrase that in, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, God is talking about the seed that would be sent to provide salvation, to provide, to provide justification for people, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. That's in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, if I didn't mention that already. So Zacharias informs us that uh, what was happening with John the Baptist and Jesus was an integral part of these promises. God is now bringing them to fulfillment. That the prophecies from 2,000 years ago, the prophecies from 1,000 years ago are coming to a head now in Christ and in the forerunner. Now, 74 and 75, if you look at those two verses, please. God's doing this raising up the horn of salvation, redeeming, visiting, confirming and fulfilling his promises made through David to David and uh, to Abraham to grant us, verse 74, to grant us that we, follow along please, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, there's a physical salvation, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. Zechariah speaks of this deliverance and tells us that it's not just deliverance for deliverance's sake, but that the Jews might serve God in peace and holiness and righteousness. But this is God's desire for his people throughout all the ages. Serve God, you say? Serve God? Yes, that's right. You're invariably going to serve someone or something in your life. You agree? It's far better to serve the Lord. Notice what accompanies this service. In an environment of peace from enemies and in in an environment of holiness and righteousness, this environment is a first-rate, second-to-none, better-than-all-others environment. It's a blessing to serve God 
because eventually you're going to do so in perfect bliss. No enemies, no sin. God's going to recreate the world in holiness and righteousness, and his servants, Revelation tells us, shall serve him. But to do that, we and and they at that time need to be brought into a state of holiness and righteousness. Without that, people are disqualified from doing any good work. Now, listen, I understand people do decent things, they do good things, but unbelief, in unbelief, people are disqualified from being on God's team. Titus 1.16 is where I get that notion from. They're disqualified from every good work. They're not following the prescribed order of things or the rules, as it were, of God's program. Hebrews 12.14 tells us, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But it's hopeless to try to achieve that for yourself. So my counsel is to give up that pursuit if you're trying to achieve holiness yourself and receive that right standing offered in Christ. I was thinking, I didn't have this in my notes, but I was thinking somebody might object and say, what what is all this about serving God? You know that in serving God, there's no higher place of service. There's no higher office of service that you can offer. No higher person that you can serve. And serving God is actually good for you. You might think, oh, I'd like, I just want to serve myself. I just want to, you know what, that's kind of a, an empty, circular, uh, meaningless, uh, in the end, a self referential kind of service. You don't realize if you're not saved how that's just kind of spinning your wheels and not accomplishing really good for you. And serving yourself, you're actually harming yourself. You need to esteem others higher than yourself. You need to serve others. And beyond that, serving God. In serving God, you find the greatest joy, the greatest glory that can be found in life. So don't think of serving God. See, God asks us to serve him not because he is a megalomaniac, some egotistical, you know, self-centered deity. He asks us to serve him because not only does it glorify him inter-Trinitarianly, but also because it blesses us to be in service to him. And you maybe find that abstract or difficult to understand. It's not easy to explain. But it is true, nonetheless. That is where the best is found. There's joy in serving Jesus, right? The last section of the message this morning is the future the future message, the future proclamation of the baby prophet. Notice notice verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. Now, as far as the big picture of the Bible, this is interesting to me because he's called the prophet of the highest. By the way, we've mentioned before, but I'll mention again, Gabriel said that the son that's born to Mary is going to be called the son of the highest. This is the prophet of the highest, okay? So there's the son of the highest, there's the prophet of the highest, okay? He's not quite so high as the son, okay? The son is the, son is the uh, ruler of the universe. But minor point, the point that I was making in my mind with this, and I want to share with you just to remind you, the Bible is a unity. The Bible is one book, the, is the one book of God. I think sometimes we get to mind of thinking, well, there's the Old Testament and there's the New Testament 
and they're kind of two separate things. You know, there's the God of the Old Testament, but he's kind of updated, and in, in the New Testament, it's a little different. That's not the case. There's one God, one Bible, one unified storyline that God gives us in Scripture. And this, you might say, where are you getting this from? John the Baptist was just another one of the prophets. That's where I'm getting it from. Okay, If I can use that to help you highlight in your mind the unity of the Scripture, John was, you could think of him as the last in the long line of Old Testament prophets. Now, of course, Jesus, too, was a prophet, but we'll, we'll set him in a different category because he is in a different category just for a moment. But that line of merely human prophets extended from Enoch, Jude 14 says that Enoch prophesied through Samuel, Samuel was the prophet. David, it says, was a prophet, at least in some points in the Psalms. Elijah and Elisha were prophets. Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Malachi and Zechariah and Haggai and Habakkuk and Jonah, all of them prophets. The prophetic ministry seemed to have tailed off and ceased at the end of Malachi, but it resumed with John after the long intertestamental hiatus. God again speaking to his people through the prophet John. That's why I say that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John's gospel, these are just continuations after Malachi. It's not like, you know, stop Malachi, different books, start totally new thing, new program. That's not the case at all. The prophetic ministry simply resumes after the hiatus and then the people learn through John and then also through Christ. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. Before that, it was through the prophets in many parts and in many ways, Hebrews 1-2 says, but now through Jesus Christ and then later on through his apostles. But this is the unified program of God. John the Baptist would have a job to do. Look at verse 76. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. He was the voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight the ways of our God. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His job was to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Any wonder why he had a baptism of repentance? Because he called people to repent so that their sins would be remitted And they identified with that message through water baptism. This all works through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring, the Messiah that's a reference to from on high, has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. John preached repentance. He was the herald of the coming king and his kingdom. And so it is for us. We must be heralds of that same king and same kingdom. How are you going to be rightly related to the king? Just one way, you must be born again. How do you be born again? By faithful repentance before Christ. By believing that he died for your sins and rose again, that he's coming again as king, that he uh, is the Lord of all creation. Of course, we've got to be able to experience that ourselves before we can tell others effectively about it. Salvation comes through the remission of sins. You see that at the end of verse 77, by the remission of sins. So he gives knowledge, he's proclaiming the knowledge of salvation, 
And how? Well, that's through the forgiveness of sins because you can't exist, you can't fellowship with God, you can't have a union with Him if you're sitting there immersed in sin. You must have your sins washed away. And God gladly does that. He removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. He buries it in the depths of the deepest sea so that we can say our sins are gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Without this forerunner and without particularly without Christ, there would be, well, no Christmas, of course, as we have Christmas in August, but there would be no fellowship with God, there would be no heaven, there would be no eternal life, there would be no hope. Without remission of sins, you have none of those. Sins had to be paid, and if that were not the case, then Christ would not have come to do it. It had to be done. Otherwise, he wouldn't have quote-unquote, wasted his time to come and do it. It was consequently necessary that he come and give himself for our sins once that sin entered into the world. Well, we could say more. There's a little bit about the day spring from on high. Read Peter about that, the day dawning and the day spring uh, coming into our hearts and so on. But we need that. We need that light because we're... Without it, sitting in the, under the pall of death and in the gloom of darkness, we would have no release from those bitter enemies unless Christ came and released us from them. But that's why life seems so dark to those who don't know Christ. To those of us who know him, doesn't life seem like it's full of light? I hope it does for you. If it doesn't, please, let's talk. Let's pray together. Let's look at what God has done for us. God guides us in the way of peace, peace with God and peace with our fellow man. The focus of John the Baptist and of his dad is on Christ, isn't it? Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior. Zacharias added, blessed is the God, the Lord of Israel. Like those blessed saints of old, Let's be worshiping God as they did. And remember that, that um, little part that I had in verse 74 and 75. We're delivered from the hand of our enemies so that we might serve him without fear. What greater enemy is there than sin and death? We've been delivered from them. Let us serve God faithfully. Pray with me, would you please? Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness in allowing us to see this text of Scripture again. I pray that it's lifted our hearts heavenward. It's caused our thoughts to reflect your thoughts. It's caused us to desire to be closely, closer related to you, to set aside sin and to serve you in holiness and reverence all the days of our life. May that be the case. May Fellowship Bible Church, those listening online, those from Hiawatha also find their greatest joy in serving Christ Jesus, our Lord. In his name we pray, amen.